Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you'd open those with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you brought your own Bible, great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this, and you'll be looking for page 936. 936 in that hardback black one. 2 Timothy 4. I wonder if I were to ask you, uh, just off the cuff, to give an answer to the question, how you might respond. If I were to ask you, what do you expect out of your pastors? What do you expect a pastor to do or to be? How do you know if a pastor is a good one or a bad one? How do you know if a pastor is a productive one or a lazy one? How do you know if a pastor is a faithful one or an untrustworthy one? Well, today we're going to consider the primary charge or the primary purpose for which God has given pastors to local churches. As we've addressed many times before, churches and pastors might do many good things, but we are interested, in fact, we want to make sure that we don't fail to do those things that God has commanded us explicitly to do. We might do many things, but we want to make sure that we don't fail to do the things God has explicitly commanded. Now, today is going to be another one of those topical messages where I aim to take a bit more of a survey of a particular topic that the Bible speaks to or addresses, rather than expositing any particular passage of Scripture. Uh, as many of you know, our primary um, uh, intention is that when we gather together on Sunday mornings, uh, we intend to we intend to uh, uh, put on display and to practice what's called expositional preaching, and that is the kind of preaching where the Bible drives the point of the sermon, where we come to the biblical text and we let the text drive us wherever it sees fit. Today, I am going to use a primary passage uh, for our sermon, but I'm also going to bounce around a bit, again, trying to provide uh, basically a, a broad picture of what the Bible says is the charge for pastors, and that charge specifically to preach and teach among a local church. My prayer is that God would help us as we study the scriptures together this morning. Let's look then at 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, chapter 4, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'll read it out loud, and as is our tradition, would you mind standing with me as I read from this primary passage for today? In this letter from the apostle, missionary, church planting pastor, Paul, to his apprentice, Timothy, he wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. I'm going to attempt to make the 
main point of today's sermon, uh, that which is, uh, hopefully was already on the screen there behind us, uh, but that uh, God has given good gifts, the good gift of pastors to local churches for the purpose of taking responsibility for faithful preaching and teaching. So God has given the good gift of pastors to local churches for the purpose of, and this is really the key part, taking responsibility for faithful preaching and teaching. I have six points. Some will be shorter and others will be longer, but let's get straight to it. Point number one, the general charge of pastors. I told you I was going to bounce around a little bit, and here's exactly this point is one where I'm going to bounce around a bit more than the others. Uh, So let me bounce first, just a little to the left, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1 of his first letter to Timothy, that the task or the work of shepherding or overseeing among a local church is noble or good. It's morally good, it's of good value, and it's good in the sense of being beneficial to those who are under the shepherding care of good pastors. As we've talked about many times also at FBC Diana, there, there are various terms that the Bible uses to refer to the office of or the task of pastoring. So let's, all, let's bounce now further to the left to Acts chapter 20. If you have the hardback black one, you're looking for page 874. And if you have your own Bible, then I'll just trust that you have fast fingers. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30 is where I'd like to point our attention. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. In this passage, the Apostle Paul was leaving several pastors behind in Ephesus. And he called them there overseers or bishops. At his departure, he charged those pastors saying, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now the word overseers or bishops here, depending on your translation, comes from the Greek word episkopos, singular, or episkopoi, uh, plural. In verse 28, the overseers or bishops were charged with paying careful attention both to themselves and also to all the flock. And also in verse 28, they were to care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. On a side note, see right here in this passage, the interchangeable use of the words flock and church. The Bible often uses the analogy of the shepherd-sheep relationship, both with God and his people, and also pastors and church members. Much like a good father in the home, good pastors are to care for and to give attention to the well-being of those under their authority. Look now, especially at verses 29 and 30. Paul said there that there would be fierce wolves who would come in, arising from among the very ones who were charged to care for the, the flock or church of God. And this should serve as a reminder to all of us about the importance of knowing what good biblical leadership looks like. The medicine for, the answer for bad leadership or the abuse of authority is always good leadership, not the absence of leadership, not the absence of authority. That's barbarism. The answer to bad leadership or the abuse of authority is good leadership. Let's turn to another passage now to 1 Peter chapter 5. In the hardback black Bible, you're looking for 955, page 955. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. 
Here we're going to see another example of the New Testament using yet another label for this office or task of pastoring. We've looked already at overseers or bishops with the one translation, and here they're called elders. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. In this passage, it's the Apostle Peter who's giving an exhortation or calling to the elders among various local churches. This is the general letter that's going to a bunch of different churches as Peter is writing. Uh, and he is writing to the elders. Uh, this word is presbyteros, singular, or presbyteroi, plural. The elders were to, look at verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 2, we're told that they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, that is not every flock or church of God, but the one that is under their care, right? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. They were to exercise oversight, and they were to do this eagerly. Uh, They were to do this not for shameful gain, that is, not for money or prestige. And they were also to not do this with a domineering posture. The end of verse 3, though, summarizes the kind of leadership and oversight that pastors should commonly give. Look there, it says that they are to lead by example. And friends, this is why it is so important for us to understand what character is necessary for those who aspire or seek the office of elder or pastor or overseer. Just take some time to read through 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 and see how significant the qualifications are in the area of character. Not so much what skill the man has, but more so what kind of man is he? This also points us to the reality that the that any man's inner sense of calling, whatever that means, I feel called to this, is insufficient for him to be a pastor. The man must actually be called or recognized among or by a local congregation who assesses his character and then says, yes, indeed, we regard this man as qualified. One more passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 11 to 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Back nearby our main passage for today, a 9.33 in those hardback black Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Uh, here Paul instructed Timothy, probably serving as a senior pastor elder of a church there, that church there in Ephesus at that time, alongside other elders. Uh, Paul instructed him to command and teach, verse 11, the sort of things that Paul had been talking about throughout the letter. So all throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's talking about various things. And actually chapter 3, verse 15 summarizes the content of the whole letter. The letter is about how to behave or to live in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Timothy and the other pastors by implication were to, so again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 12, They were to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. They were to, verse 13, devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. They were to, verse 15, they were to practice and immerse themselves in the doctrines of church life, and even to show their personal growth in public, so that all may see their progress, verse 15. And finally, there in verse 16, Paul said, if Timothy and the other elders would do this stuff, even persist in it, then they would save both themselves and their hearers. Now, this does not mean that faithful pastors can save anyone. But it does mean that faithful pastoral leadership and investments 
are more than a mere pragmatic good, that it has eternal significance. It's a big deal. So we've already covered a lot of ground this morning. Let me just summarize where we've been so far. One, pastors in the New Testament are the same thing as overseers or bishops or elders. All of these words basically refer to the same office and the same have the same duties. Two, pastors have a general God-given biblical charge to care for, to shepherd, to exercise oversight, to command, to teach, and to set an example for church members to follow. Now, it has been my consistent and uh, ongoing teaching and preaching at FBC Diana that every church member has the responsibility to be discipling one another. We, all of us, every church member should be caring for one another. We should be teaching one another, and we should aim to live exemplary Christian lives both among this church family and out in the world where we live and work. However, it has also been my consistent preaching and teaching that pastors have a unique responsibility to lead in the task of making disciples and to do so in an authoritative way. This means that pastors are to be the leaders of the local church. Now, friends, I'd just like to say that when spiritually healthy church members take responsibility for those things the Bible assigns to them, and when pastors, uh, when, when qualified pastors take responsibility to lead and direct as the Bible commissions them, then the local church is edified and Christ is glorified. And the non-Christians outside the church, they know what Christianity is and they know what we're calling them into when we share the gospel with them. It has been my ongoing prayer and continues to this day that we as a church will increasingly strive toward doing church in exactly this kind of way. And I praise God for where I see us doing that all the time. Point number two, the primary charge of pastors. So this general charge is the leadership of the local church, the spiritual leadership by way of the preaching and teaching word ministry. Point number two, this primary charge explicitly is going to emphasize this this word ministry aspect of it. So with the general charge, which pastors are duty-bound to perform, the Bible particularly emphasizes one pastoral assignment above all others. So now we're going to look right to our main passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and concentrate our effort there. Back to page 936, if you're looking at that hardback black Bible in front of you. Page 936 is where we are. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Now, this passage really is sort of a, a climactic moment in Paul's letter to Timothy. As best as we can tell, Paul wrote this letter from prison, and he was awaiting execution for, his, for being a faithful witness to Christ. And what was the urgent charge that he gave his beloved friend and co-laborer in word ministry? Well, verse 1 says, I charge you. Okay, here's the charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, there is so much in these two verses that we might unpack, but for the moment, I want to focus on just one word. And that is the one that I see in verse 2 that is preach. The word underneath this word that's translated preach certainly includes the kind of preaching that I'm doing right now. The kind of preaching that is in the formal sense of explaining and applying God's word in the context of a Sunday morning gathering. But it has a wider meaning than that. Right here in these two verses, there is more than what I'm doing now to preaching. 
look at how Paul expands the charge there, even in verse 2. He said, preach the word. Then he goes on to explain what this looks like. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with, with complete patience and teaching. So the word translated preach here means to announce, to tell, to proclaim, even to persuade and to warn. And this, more than anything else, is what pastors are obligated to do. So brothers and sisters, let me just tell you that pastors are not community organizers. Pastors are not meant to be life coaches. They are not meant to be your personal motivators like a trainer is at the gym. Rather, pastors... God has given you pastors so that these men will preach to you. And there is great benefit to be received by anyone who will receive it. Because in this way, preaching to you, shepherding your souls by word ministry, it's in this way that pastors are caring for your soul. Consider Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 and 17. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13. Look that up later on. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 7 and 17. Let me know what you think of that anytime. I'd be glad to hear it. Number three, some points are shorter than others, like I said. The content of preaching. This one's one of the long ones. The content of preaching. The content of pastoral preaching is found right here in verse two as well. It's right beside the one word that I've already been emphasizing. Paul told Timothy to preach the word. The word to which Paul is referring here is scripture. And we can know that because the teaching of scripture was what Paul was writing about just before he broke into chapter four. Paul, in his original letter, didn't write down various chapters and verse numbers. Rather, he's just writing this letter in full body form. And chapter three is all about the teaching of scripture. And right at the end of chapter three, Paul makes a powerful and profound statement about what scripture is. Look at 2 Timothy 3, the very end of chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Right there we read that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is theonoustos. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, so that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what good work is the man or messenger of God supposed to be equipped by Scripture to do? Well, that's what Paul's saying here at the beginning of chapter 4. He is to preach the Word. That's what Scripture equips him to do. Therefore, the content of preaching is the Word of God. It is the scriptures. It is the Bible. Simply put, if it's not based on the text of scripture drawn out of the words of the Bible, then it isn't preaching. It might be entertaining. It might be sentimental. It might even be exciting or motivating. But it ain't preaching unless you can see where the preacher got it from the Bible. Again, this is not just true of the formal time that we dedicate to preaching on Sunday mornings and some Sunday evenings. This is true of all pastoral preaching and teaching. Every time a pastor makes an assertion about what is true, what is good, or what is right, it should be based on a clear biblical teaching or on the plain application of biblical doctrines and practices. Anyone who serves in the role of pastor should feel a sense of the breath of God on his neck constantly, such that He cannot but speak a word of loving exhortation both to his own heart and to others to believe and to live in keeping with Scripture. And again, this should always be the case, not just on Sundays when a pastor stands behind a pulpit, but in everyday conversations, in the counseling room, 
by the hospital bed, over the phone at odd hours of the night and at the graveside. Now, this doesn't mean that pastors can't have opinions. It doesn't mean that pastors can't speculate. It doesn't mean that pastors can't joke around. But it does mean that pastors are responsible to make it clear when they've stopped speaking their own words and when they've started speaking God's word, explaining it and applying it as best as they can. When I or any other preacher or pastor speaks a word of our own wisdom or lack thereof, then you can take it or leave it. But when a pastor is telling you the meaning and the necessary implications of the scripture, insofar as he's being faithful to the text, he is telling you what God intends you to believe and to do. If he's being faithful to the Bible, he's speaking God's own authoritative word to your heart and you are obligated to obey it. Brothers and sisters, this is why we put such a high priority on the preaching and teaching ministry of FBC Diana and of other faithful churches. We are interested in faithful preaching, preaching that sticks close to the meaning and the application of the Bible. We are not merely interested in fun preaching or entertaining preaching or, God forbid, any particular preacher. Because we're interested in faithful preaching, we want to hear more than just one preacher preach. We want to give inexperienced preachers opportunities to gain experience. We want to give less experienced preachers a chance to get better at it. And we want to encourage gifted preachers as they labor in word ministry among our own church family and beyond. Brothers and sisters, I think, I think often uh, churchgoers have forgotten how our love for and appreciation for quality and faithful preaching should not end at the walls of our own meeting house. When we foster and encourage and affirm faithful preaching from our own pastors, from godly men among our own church family, and from other preachers who are pastors and church members elsewhere, then we are investing ourselves as a whole church in the word ministry of Christ's kingdom in the world. We are playing our part in supporting and extending the chief means by which God edifies his people and grows his church in the world. Point number four, the content of preaching. I'm sorry, the context of preaching. We've already talked about the content of preaching. Of preaching. What is the context? Into what context is preaching to be done? Well, back to our main passage in 2 Timothy 4. The Apostle Paul didn't only tell Timothy about his pastoral charge to preach the word in verse 2. He also told him about the context in which he and his fellow elders, pastors, would be leading and preaching. Look especially at verses 3 and 4. What's the context of this ministry? Well, Paul wrote in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, without going into the details of eschatology, the study of end times, we're doing that on Wednesday nights, by the way. Just beginning our study of Revelation, if you are interested, you're welcome to join with that discussion. 6.15 each Wednesday evening. But Paul's warning here to Timothy is not referring to some time period 2,000 years into the future. As though it's only going to be in the very last days, right before Jesus' return, that people are going to be like this. No, Paul was warning Timothy about what his personal and pastoral experience would be in the first century. People right there in Timothy's own day did not endure sound teaching. They had itching ears. 
and they accumulated for themselves teachers or preachers to suit their own passions or their own desires. They turned away from listening to the truth and they wandered off into myths or tales. This sort of thing is not unique at any point in human history. This was the reality in ancient Israel, where they wanted kings and prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And ancient Israel murdered those who told them the truth. It's true right down into our own day, where the prosperity gospel, which offers neither prosperity nor gospel, does exactly what Paul warned about. So you can find TV evangelists, book-selling, uh, best-selling book authors, and even preachers in churches right around the corner who will tell you that God wants you to have your best life now. Well, as Michael Horton described in his book, Christless Christianity, the message of many evangelicals today is that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. Friends, this is not the message of the gospel. This is not the message of the Bible. We do not need a motivational message. We do not need to merely learn some practical steps to correct our behavioral errors. We, you and me, we need a gospel. We need a a message that announces a victory from somebody else on our behalf. We need to hear that God has done what we know we could never do, that he, God, has justified guilty sinners through the person and work of a marvelous Savior. Now, friends, the Bible, the message of the Bible, it rakes against our sinful skin because it tells us the ugly truth about us. It tells us the truth that we are not good. As a matter of fact, we are very bad. We have sinned against God in serious and many ways throughout our whole lives. And the gospel is good news precisely because it tells us the truth about our helplessness as well. God knows, the Bible knows, the gospel knows that you and I are simply incapable of making ourselves righteous. We are helpless and hopeless as long as we are looking to ourselves for the answers to our problems. But the gospel is not, thank God, ultimately a message of bad news. So long as we're willing to be honest with ourselves and with God about it. If we will admit our sin and our inability, then we can hear the most wonderful news ever. That God, who is rich in mercy, who has loved guilty sinners like us, us, and has demonstrated that love in sending Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to live the perfect life that we haven't, to die underneath the penalty that we deserve, and to conquer death so that we might have life forevermore. This message then is fantastic news. But the gospel is indeed bad news for those who don't want to hear it. The Bible says the gospel is folly or foolishness. And it's even the stench of death to those who are headed to destruction. The bitter irony of our sinful hearts is that we are well able to deceive ourselves into thinking that our pride and our self-assurance is totally warranted, that it's right. But friends, the Bible teaches us to be skeptical of our own motives, to be skeptical of our own desires, even above other things, because we are, as as fallen descendants of our first parents, we are naturally inclined towards sin and error. And we will naturally do whatever we can to stop hearing the voices that call us out of sin and seek to correct our error. Point number five, the tasks of preaching. Okay, because of the context that I've just described based on the teaching of Scripture, 
because the context is what it is, anyone who steps up to do the work of preaching is taking on an impossible task. Preaching is impossible because it's telling the truth to people who naturally naturally don't want to hear it. It's an impossible task. But thank God that his word accomplishes the impossible. Because scripture is the content of our preaching, and because God's spirit works in and through God's word to bring life from death, light from darkness, and a whole tree of wisdom from the desolate soil of ignorance, then the preacher must simply know and proclaim the truth of God's word. And we all may, over time, watch the impossible take shape right in front of our eyes. So with this point, with point number five, I'd like to to take some time to remind us all that preaching doesn't begin or end with preaching. That might not make exact sense to you right out of the gate, so let me explain it. I've heard sometimes that uh, people would joke around that uh, pastors don't, they, they only work on Sundays. I'm thankful that uh, no one in this congregation accuses me of such a thing. I'm thankful that uh, there's appreciation for the work that we do here. But I've heard it said. Uh, And I guess that some vocational pastors could and do only work for a short time on Sundays. But I don't know how in the world a pastor could ever get by with such a low view of preaching, with such an unloving practice of pastoring, or such an unbiblical and paltry view of the local church. As I've already tried to clarify... Preaching means more than just what I'm doing right now. But even if it did refer only to this one task of expositing and applying scripture on Sunday mornings, then such a task already requires more time and effort than the 45 to 55 and sometimes shaded into 60 minutes that you see on Sunday mornings. On average, I spend somewhere between 12 and 20 hours to prepare a single sermon week to week. I normally do this on Thursdays and Fridays and some late hours on Saturday nights. And the week-to-week sermon preparation is certainly a major investment, but this is only one aspect of that particular task of preaching formally on Sundays. So before I preach through any book of the Bible, typically I spend about 20 to 40 hours outlining and planning the preaching series. I want to understand the big picture of the, of the book of the Bible that we're about to study through. I want to understand how it all fits together. And I want to do all of this before I ever preach through any particular passage of it. In addition to this sort of study and planning, I'll also usually read at least a book or two, and sometimes more, that address some prominent biblical theological theme uh, in, in the book that I'm, we're about to study together. Or maybe some sticky interpretive matter that we're going to address. Or maybe some textual critical issue that arises somewhere in the text that we're about to read through. I'm also constantly reading books that will help me better understand what the Bible says in any given passage. I read books on theology, uh, books on preaching, books on Christian living, books on worldview analysis, uh, books on various subjects that are relevant to our cultural moment, uh, books on understanding how to interpret the Bible, and and many others. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is why uh, it's such a great privilege for FBC Diana to have at least one full-time vocational pastor. An elder, to, be, to, to say it in the words of 1 Timothy 5.17, who labors in preaching and teaching. Quality preaching is often not a matter of ability or effort. It's often a matter of time constraints. And so we value the task of preaching so highly here that we're willing to pay a full-time salary and cover other costs as well so that a man can spend a good chunk of his life just studying the Bible. Now, I'm so thankful that I get to have, as my professional employment, the office of pastoring. 
And I'm also glad for the benefits that our church family enjoys as a result of valuing the word ministry in this church to such a high degree. But again, let's not forget that preaching the word is about more than just one guy getting up here behind the pulpit every single week. Preaching, the way our pastor, the, the way our passage is using the word, broadly means to tell, to persuade, and to warn. Or again, in the language of 2 Timothy 4, it means to take on the tasks of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, and to do all of this with great patience and teaching. Furthermore, in verse 5, these tasks will require a sober mind, a willingness to endure suffering, and a gritty resolve to do the work of an evangelist, a gospel proclaimer, as an ongoing ministry or service. So friends, the tasks of preaching include every aspect of the teaching and word ministry of a local church. From showing a brother his faulty doctrine, to rebuking a sister who's being led astray from a bad mix of unbiblical teaching and her own emotions. From urging Christians to act like Christians, and patiently teaching people what it means to be a Christian in the first place. All of these, and many more, are the tasks, plural, of preaching. You'll notice once again, that even as I'm listing these tasks, that all church members can and should participate in the sort of tasks I'm talking about here. However, pastors are particularly responsible to lead and to oversee the word ministry of the local church. So let me explain it like this, pointing to the practical ways that we do this here. The pastors or elders of FBC Diana are responsible for the overall word ministry of our church. Therefore, the four of us collectively invest ourselves in various preaching and teaching efforts. We personally invest ourselves in these efforts. Preaching on Sundays, curating a list of songs that we sing as a congregation, teaching on Wednesdays, Wednesdays, teaching course groups, leading life groups, teaching on various matters of doctrine and polity during members' meetings, and spending time learning about all of this by reading up on it and discussing matters of pastoral theology and practice as a group. These are ways we personally invest in such things. We also, the elders of this church, collectively look for and plan for ways to train up other church members in sound doctrine so that we all might be better students of the word and teachers of the word. So we, all of the elders, collectively, we encourage godly men to formally preach and teach. We aim to equip godly women and men to teach one another in numerous formal and informal ways. And we generally strive to ensure that the word ministry of FBC Diana involves all the members and is Bible-saturated and vibrant. In addition to all of this, we, uh, because we as a church family care about the word ministry of Christ's kingdom more broadly and not merely that of our own congregation, we, the pastors of FBC Diana, give time to cultivating relationships with other pastors and churches. Now, this largely falls to me since I'm the only vocational pastor uh, right now among our church family. But the time invested is well worth it. Because we have real relationships with other pastors and other churches, we all can mutually benefit from. And we can all invest in and we can all rejoice in a more expanded word ministry. This is one of the reasons why we have guest preachers from other churches. Sometimes these guys are full-time preachers elsewhere, but sometimes they're pastors or church members who don't preach very often at their own churches. And when we give them opportunities to preach at FBC Diana, we are benefiting from their efforts. We're enjoying their word ministry. And we are helping them to become better preachers 
for whatever future ministry God has in store for them. So we benefit and invest when someone, not me, comes to preach on a Sunday morning or not among our own elders. This is a benefit to us and an encouragement to them and a, an investment in the broader word ministry of Christ's kingdom in the world. But this is also why we give from our own resources to missions and to church planting and to church revitalization. So, so historically, as a church affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, we have uh, contributed to something called the cooperative program. So our cooperative giving, along with thousands of other Southern Baptist churches, helps to train pastors, existing pastors and future pastors, in seminary. It also helps to fund missionaries and church planters, both far and near. We have also particularly and personally partnered with specific missionaries and church planters. So from our general giving as a church, we have budgeted thousands of dollars a year to go from First Baptist Diana to Redemption Baptist Church in Nacogdoches, to Cody Howard and Church Under the Bridge and Mission, Mission Texarkana, and to Dan Collins with Training Leaders International, who's an international pastoral training ministry. So brothers and sisters, we want healthy and bold and faithful word ministry to happen in Diana and around the world. And we want to use our own pulpit, our own classrooms, our own money, and our own time to help where we can. We want to spend ourselves empty, and we want to invest wisely, both near and far. And I pray that God would bless our efforts, and even that he would give us more resources to do more with it. Point number six, the last one on the docket for this morning, is the motive of preaching. So this last point gets to the why question. Why? Why should a preacher, why should a pastor step up to the task of doing the impossible? Why should any local church expect of her pastors to be doing the work of faithful word ministry? And why should we as a church family, why should we invest our time, our treasure, and our talent, sometimes in ways that don't make sense to the world around us, to this effort? Well, the short answer is a good Sunday school answer because Jesus is watching and he is working and he is ruling and reigning right now and he is coming again and he is bringing his reward with him when he comes. So look back to 2 Timothy 4. Look at verse 1 especially. Paul's pastoral charge to Timothy began with a context, but a context which superseded whatever context Timothy was going to be facing there in Ephesus. Paul's charge came in verse 1, in the presence of God. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul knew that God and his Christ were the ultimate origin of the pastoral charge. And it was Jesus himself who commanded his disciples to be his witnesses by preaching the gospel and teaching converts all that Christ had commanded, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Paul knew that Jesus has ultimate authority over everyone and everything, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and that Jesus will render his judgments in his own good time. And finally, Paul knew that Jesus had appeared and that he will appear again, and that Jesus' kingdom will last far longer than any earthly one. Therefore, the motive that Timothy 
and all pastors have for preaching and teaching, for overseeing faithful word ministry among local churches, and for investing themselves in the expansion of Christ's word all around the world, is Christ's kingly and present eye. Jesus sees, and he is working through his word, and he will come again and reward his faithful servants. This is the steady drumbeat of the Bible. Let me point you to two more passages before we end today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. This summarizes the pastoral heart. Paul says, him, that is Jesus Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, so that. What's the, what's the pastoral heart behind doing this? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The idea here is that pastors are faithfully preaching and teaching those under their care so that when we all stand before Christ on that last day, the sheep which Christ has entrusted to us will be ready to meet him. Let me just take just a quick sidebar for a second. This is not in my notes. This is off the cuff. So forgive anything that's, you know, uh, eat the meat and spit out the bones. But friends, this is why it's so important to have pastors and not just talking heads on a screen somewhere, however big or small that head might be. If it's in the, you know, off the phone screen or a computer screen or the television screen at your home, it's so important that you know those men who are shepherding your souls because you'll know where they're leading you, not just that they're good preachers, not just that they're great communicators every once in a while, not just that they had a zinger of a message one time that really inspired you. I'm not saying all those things are bad. I love the reality that we have such good preaching accessible far and wide in our world today. I'm so thankful for it. But friends, we don't just need communicators. We don't just need preachers. We need pastors. All of us need pastors who care for our souls and do this by way of lovingly telling us the truth, formally on Sunday mornings and day to day, all the days of our lives, so that when we stand before Christ, we will be ready to meet him. That's what pastors want to do for you. That's what good pastors will do with and for you. What a fearful and joyful thought that is. One more passage, back to when we've already visited, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, especially in verse 4. This teaches us that the effort of shepherding care, that it will be rewarded one day when, as Peter says, the chief shepherd appears. And those under shepherds who labored well will receive an unfading crown of glory. So, brothers and sisters, for the spiritual growth of the church and for the reward that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring in his own good time, these things are the result of faithful pastoral preaching and teaching. And who could ask, for a more glorious responsibility and privilege. May God grant us as a church family, faithful pastors. May he help us to benefit greatly from the faithful word ministry that we enjoy here. And may God enable us to encourage, to encourage us to give our own time, our own treasure and our own talent 
to supporting faithful word ministry both locally and beyond.